There's no doubt today that we live in a time of trial, not just because of the recent pandemic that we're apparently coming out of, but we live in an age in which men and women deny the word of God on every hand, live ungodly and immoral lives with no second thoughts. It appears that the query of Jesus in the book of Luke may well require a negative answer. In Luke chapter 1, verse uh, 6 through 8, the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect to cry out that who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, will the Son of Man find faith on the earth when he comes? There does not seem to be a man or a woman to stand in the gap and make up the hedge. Too many in the church are going back to the beggarly elements of this world. There is an Old Testament response to all of this, though. There is an Old Testament example that can serve as an encouragement and as a boon to our faith and as a light by which we may be able to chart our compass. Daniel's courage is unparalleled, I believe, in either testament. So let's study what the scripture has to say. Daniel was a boy, probably about 17 years old, when King Nebuchadnezzar and the troops from the Babylonian army attacked and ransacked the city of Jerusalem. He, uh, this was God's judgment on Jerusalem for ignoring his will, God's will. God had been faithful to Judah as well as to her sister to the north, Israel, before her. But they, like their sister to the north, had stiffened their neck and hardened their heart, and God brought judgment upon them. This story has always been a fascination to me, as well as an encouragement, especially when I learned that Daniel was apparently a young boy, about 17 years old. The, the age is not a definite number, but he was very young. And he's so determined in his heart at that point in time that it set the course of his life. No doubt he, this was a defining moment for the young man. I'm convinced tonight that we often have defining moments in our life. And sometimes we rarely know them. But if we have our purpose set, if we have our pl chart plotted, we will be safe. I believe that there are moments in this life that, like in Daniel's life, set our course for good or evil. I want you to notice, first of all, there was no exterior motivation that guided Daniel to this decision other than a simple desire to please God. You see, he has been captured. He has been taken as a slave to Babylon. And here he's sentenced to serve a wicked pagan king as an advisor. But before that happened, Daniel had to be trained. He had to be taught in the ways of the Babylonian court. He had to be taught the customs of the Chaldeans. Look again in, verse, in Daniel chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had the ability to serve in the king's palace that they might, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank in three years of training. 
for them so that, that at that time, at the end of that time, they might serve before the king. Notice again these benefits uh, that Daniel offered as well as the three, his three friends. He was good looking. He was gifted in wisdom. He was quick to understand, a quick study we might call him today. He already had knowledge. In other words, he was not an ignorant young man. He also had ability to serve in the king's palace. That means that there was some sort of refinement, some sort of demeanor about him that made him pleasant to be around. The purpose for his captivity and for all of this was so that Daniel and his three friends and undoubtedly others could learn the language and literature of the Chaldeans. This may be a way of saying to learn the culture of Babylon. The king approved of his master of eunuch's choice and Daniel and he and the others were given a daily allowance. This probably involves more than their daily food and raiment or clothing. The king's delicacies and the wine which he drank and three years of training graduate school, if you will. Their education, their career was established. It should have been a life of ease and merriment, but it wasn't. Not for these four. There was some severe testing ahead. There was something different about these guys, though, than the other captives. They didn't fit in. They didn't blend so well with the other captives. It's as if they were walking, if you will, to the beat of a different drummer. But the kings and the king, the king and the king's court had a plan, probably one that they had used effectively before. We can call Nebuchadnezzar the enemy. After all, he was the one whose armies had destroyed the city of God. He was the one whose enemies had destroyed their families, killed their parents, taken away their worship. Surely Nebuchadnezzar was the enemy. But a sword to the neck was not in Nebuchadnezzar's plan. He wasn't going to force recantation of their faith. He wasn't going to threaten them with death. That was not the order of the day. You see, Nebuchadnezzar didn't want bodies. He wanted servants, scholars. He wanted minds and hearts. So Nebuchadnezzar was subtle. Not an outright attack in the court of the Chaldeans today. Nebuchadnezzar treated them well. He pampered them. He gave them everything that they could desire, everything that they wanted. They, they were clothed. They were bathed. They were groomed. They were fed. They had good work to do. Things were going pretty well. Or was it? Let's look at this through eyes of the Scripture now. Let's keep in mind that Nebuchadnezzar was the instrument of God to bring judgment to Judah. The, Nebuchadnezzar was the national enemy. Daniel and the three friends were in the enemy's court. And the enemy, the enemy has a plan. I was seven years old when I wanted to preach. And I had worked up a sermon. My dad, who was the pastor of a denomination, uh, finally agreed after me pastoring him for a long time to let me give my little sermon on Wednesday night after the offertory. I don't know if anybody alive would remember that other than myself and my mother because mother had to move the piano stool so that I could stand behind the piano stool. I don't remember anything about the sermon except the event and my text. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion 
seeking whom they may, he may devour. I think Nebuchadnezzar is the enemy in Daniel's life. And we would do well to remember that there is an enemy in our life seeking to devour us, seeking to destroy us. He is not our friend. He may offer things in this life, in this world, that satisfy our longings, that quench our desires, we think. You see, the devil tries to do what Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do to Daniel. I believe that one of the first things that the enemy does is try to isolate us as individual Christians. I want you to note carefully, first thing that Nebuchadnezzar did was take out of Daniel's life all godly influence. He killed his parents. He destroyed the worship. They weren't allowed to worship in the court of the Chaldeans. It's true they could pray. It's true they had probably taken copies of the Torah with them, and they could no doubt read it. But Nebuchadnezzar removed all godly influence from him. And then he forced him to move to an unfamiliar place, to a strange place, a place with strange customs. This had to be unsettling. Not only was all holy and godly influence removed, no outright attack in the court, remember, Nebuchadnezzar just didn't provide for Daniel's godly influence, for Daniel's godly training. He wasn't interested in that. And so it is the devil does to us today. He makes us so busy sometimes that we can't possibly attend the services of the church. He makes us so busy sometimes that we can't possibly set a time aside to study our Bibles. Daniel was taken away from the instruction in the temple. How important is our assembly? The life-given word of God was removed from Daniel's life, or at least attempt at it, of it. This furthered his isolation. We should ask, do we have enough of the word of God hidden in our heart so that when those times of trial and those times of difficulty come, we can survive and make it through to the other side? Richard Wernbrand was a Lutheran pastor in uh, Romania. He began pastoring uh, shortly after World War II. He was jailed in the early 50s, if I understand and remember right, because he stood up to the Romanian government who was bowing to Joseph Stalin. And they requested, no, they demanded that all the churches in Romania, and as well as the other uh, many of the other European countries recognized Mr. Stalin as the supreme commander and lord of the church. Mr. Wormbrand stood up in a huge assembly and was the sole voice denying Mr. Stalin as the lord of the church. He said Jesus Christ is the only lord and head of the church. And because of that statement, he was arrested and denied human contact for many, many years. He was denied a Bible, suffered incredible tortures, spent long periods of times, weeks at times in what's called the Iron Maiden. You can look that up when you get home to find out what that was. After he was released, he testified that the only thing that kept him sane, because there was times when he didn't have the strength to sing, or times that he didn't have the strength to pray, was the Psalms that he had memorized. He could quote them in his mind to keep him focused 
on the good and the godly things. I think that the next thing that the devil, that Nebuchadnezzar did to Daniel was try to indoctrinate him with the culture of the Chaldeans. You see, Nebuchadnezzar didn't just take away everything that was good and holy out of Daniel's life. He wanted to fill Daniel's mind with the knowledge of the Chaldeans. No doubt his purpose was to make him think like a Babylonian. I think this could be called a form of brainwashing. You know, today the world can take us away. Maybe our job is important. Maybe our schooling is important, and I'm not denying those things. Maybe there are times when we need to do the bare minimum. If we're in those times, this is a very, very dangerous time. And this is when we need to be the most careful. This is when we need to be the most purposeful in our deliberate service to God, in our deliberate study of the Word, in our deliberate prayer life. Because the void is not, the void that is created in those times by not giving heed to the Word and spiritual and holy things is going to be filled with something. We don't live in a vacuum, people. We must realize that the world does not think like we do. The world does not have our best interest at heart. The court of the Chaldeans did not think like the Hebrews. The court of the Chaldeans did not have Daniel's and his three friends' best interest at heart. Remember, the world views life without God. That is a very, very different Worldview, I believe, and I'm going to get off on a little uh, tangent of mine, a pet peeve a little bit, if you will, that this is one of the problems with sports. Because the sports teams have to be number one. I've seen it. I've experienced it. The schedules of the player and the player's family have to revolve around the sports team's schedules or whatever social organization it may be. You see, they demand 100%. And too often, when we as Christians are involved in these things, we expect the Lord, and the Lord's church, to take less than what we give the team, or less than what we give the club. I believe number three, Nebuchadnezzar tried to get Daniel to compromise. Consider the food that was offered to Daniel. All of my life, I've heard that this was food that was prohibited by the Old Testament, the law of Moses. I'm not 100% convinced that it was. The scriptures, at least in the New King James versions, does not say, specify, that this was prohibited food. It very likely was. That's, 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 I want to be on record for that. It very likely was, but... The scriptures doesn't specify that. It doesn't mean that the dainties that were on the king's table were in the list of prohibitions of the law of Moses. It could simply be that this food was blessed by pagan prayers. That would be a problem for the Israelites. Or, hear me carefully here, it could be that Daniel saw this rich, sumptuous food and thought, this is going to cause me to love Babylon more than home. The food may not have been the problem. Just like sports are not necessarily wrong. But here's the thing. Anything that will cause us to love God less 
anything that will cause us to love the world more, anything, whatever it is, that may cause us to think more like a resident than a pilgrim, we need to abstain from it. We need to flee from it. It may be that Daniel didn't want the king's food because he thought, this will make me love this land. I'm a Hebrew. I don't belong here. Sometimes we start to feel like we belong here, and we really don't. Number four, I think Nebuchadnezzar and the court of the Chaldeans was trying to confuse these four young men's minds. They changed their names. All my life, I've read over this change of names and thought, well, it's just a custom. I think there was more behind the custom than what casually meets the eye because there's a lot of weight in a name. By changing their names, Nebuchadnezzar was removing them one more step away from home, one more step closer to Babylon. They heard their new name every day. What a struggle that must have caused in their minds. How difficult it was for them to maintain their true identity. And I've been focusing a lot here lately on our identity. Who we are matters. You see, these young men had lost their home. They'd lost their parents. They'd lost their worship. They'd lost their customs. And now they lost their name. I can only imagine how difficult it was for them to begin to continue to remember that they were Hebrews, that they were not Babylonian, they were not Chaldean. I wonder sometimes if Nebuchadnezzar changed their name in order to change their mindset. No doubt, this name change was intended to change the way they thought of God, that they thought of themselves, and that they thought of the world that was around them. This name change could have been intended to change the very essence of life. No longer was Jehovah going to be their God. No longer were they going to be Hebrews. No longer were they going to regard others as outside of the covenant. Now everybody's the same, religiously and culturally. No longer were they going to regard themselves as the covenant people. No longer were they going to be outsiders, captives in a foreign land, but now residents, part of the Chaldean community. You know, we too have a name change. When we obey the gospel, we're supposed to lose our identity. It is to be no longer I. It is to be he must increase. We are, after all, strangers and pilgrims. We are, after all, dwellers in a foreign country. Let's act like we don't belong here. Let's be heavenly minded. Let's serve our king with all that we are. Let's let our individual identity be absolved into his. Let me, let each and every one of us here tonight be known first and only as a Christian. A few months ago, I began studying with the brethren in Southeast Asia, in Cambodia to be specifically, uh, via Zoom. And uh, we were recording some sermons, and Brother Wani was translating those sermons as, as we recorded them for his publication and his work there. I'm happy to work with him along these lines. And I noticed one day, particularly, it must have been particularly hotter than usual. It's always hot in Cambodia. I was sitting in my air-conditioned office, comfortable, in a short sleeve shirt. My hair was fixed 
I was not sweating. I was sitting in a padded office chair behind my nice big desk. I was very comfortable. And my brother on the other end of the line, I could see him in the video, wiping sweat every 30 seconds or so off of his brow. It wasn't long his shirt became soaked through with sweat. And I began to think, I'm going too long. It really wasn't. It was only about 20 minutes. It was just that hot and that humid there. And I noticed this particular, this particular day because he had just explained before we began recording the difficulty that they were having even getting to the market to buy food because of the pandemic. I was moved. I was touched by his dedication and his zeal to preach and to put out the word of God in spite of the difficulties that they were facing. And I thought how silly it is of me to whine and complain about the struggles that I think I have. And so I commented on it. I, I praised him. I thanked him for it. And his response was what you see on the, scene, on the screen. He said, it is a great pleasure for me to be able to be marching with you for the same king. May God help us to have that same mindset. Folks, we don't belong here. This is not our home. Let's be like Daniel and purpose in our hearts. You know, you would think that after such an introduction to the Chaldean land that Daniel and his friends would be happy to assimilate, happy to take on citizenship in their new homeland. But verse 8 paints a little bit of a different story. Chapter 1, Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. How and why are important questions to ask here. We also need to consider what. What exactly was the purpose that Daniel was so committed to in his heart? We've already discussed at, 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 in some measure the portion of the king's meat question. Whatever form it may have been, Daniel decided not to defile himself with it. Understand today, there was no going around this decision. He didn't offer any excuses. Daniel didn't say, as we're apt to do sometimes, it's only meat. He didn't say, hey, we're in a foreign land. They do things different here. He didn't offer the excuse that this prohibition against me was only for Judah. But we're in Babylon now. We often do that sometimes, don't we? We decide in our own wisdom that God gave prohibitions for women not to teach in the church or to have authority over men. That's only for the Corinthians. We decide sometimes that the prohibition on Christian women cutting their hair or wearing pants or other immodest attire was only for the first century. Sometimes we decide that the necessity of attending the assembly of the church, that was for another time. That was for another day. Or the admonition for men to be fishers of men, that was for another generation. But we're in an enlightened age, and we can do away with those things. It seems sometimes that our liberties have suddenly increased. But it isn't so. It wasn't so for Daniel. It's not so for us. And I want you to notice, first of all, that Daniel's purpose was decisive. We must remember that true faithfulness begins with small things, things that are considered insignificant by many. 
You see, Daniel and company were under intense pressure. Their consciences were under attack. The pressure to confirm to Babylonian customs was and ways was intense. Their lives may even be at stake. There were others like these young men who, were, who had been taken captive about the same time, taken to the same foreign city, forced to do the same kind of service. Probably they made fun of Daniel and these three young men. Their reasoning may have sounded much like, if you can call it that, what today would be, what harm would good food be? What harm is new names and new customs? But Daniel decided or purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. He realized that for the king, the child of God, some things are not for negotiation. Some things are not up for compromise. And from the outset, he refused the court's delicacies. In many ways, I believe his usefulness in the kingdom of God, as we read about it through the rest of the book, was hinged on this one single decision. If he hadn't made it here and now, he probably would not have found himself in the positions that he later occupied. He probably would have found himself morally and spiritually too weak to cope with the lion's den or to utter and have the grand visions and prophecies that we find later in the book. Instead, from the beginning, in what to others may have seemed like a trivial matter, he nailed his colors to the mast, and in doing so he gained a bridgehead into enemy-occupied territory and found himself increasingly strong in the Lord. Little things matter. Folks, don't wait. Don't wait until you're in a position of social strength to confess Christ and obey his commands. By the time you gain that social position that you think you want, you probably will have lost moral strength that will enable you to confess Christ openly and joyfully. How can you confess him later if you cannot confess him now? One thing you've allowed him, refused to allow him to do now is be your Savior and Lord. How can you do it later when times are harder? Let's take the first opportunity. It won't be easy. The fact of the matter is, no easier opportunity will ever present itself than the opportunity we have right now. The second one is more difficult and probably more costly. Notice, too, that Daniel did not leave his actions to a spur-of-the-moment response. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's meat. He made a decision before God. And he found one of the great biblical secrets of spiritual success. It's better known to our forefathers, I think, than it may be to us. And he entered into a solemn covenant in the presence of God that he would turn away from sinful behavior, whatever form it may have presented itself. So I've said before, the king's meat could represent many things. Things of the world. Old timers used to preach against the show. They were talking about the vaudeville shows that were extant in their time. They preached against the TV, saying that bringing it into our homes would bring the enemy and giving him in and giving him a prominent place. And have we not found that to be so? Today, the average American spends multitudes of hours on TV or playing multitudes of hours of video games, things that may not be 
long in and of themselves. But because they devote so much time and energy to those things, they have little or no time for God. It's difficult to impossible sometimes to get people to set time aside for worship on Sunday morning, much less Wednesday nights, or for a Bible study in their homes during the middle of the week. It's little wonder then when Bible doctrine begins to be compromised, isn't it? Our minds become so filled with Babylonian thinking and Babylonian worldviews that we reason around and thus saith the Lord, and compromise becomes the order of the day. I believe this is the underlying reason why some of the big churches of Christ, put that in quotation marks if you will, have ordained women elders and women ministers. Either concept is applicable to the word of God. That's why some so-called churches of Christ have brought in instrumental music. I suggest going home and reading and studying 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 19. The scriptures tell us about these things. You see, Daniel's purpose is what carried him through the betrayal and through the lion's den years later. And only if we purpose like he did do we have hope of surviving the storm, whether it is present in our life or future in days to come. Let us be a people like Daniel with a purpose in our hearts that we will not defile ourselves no matter what the cost may be. If you're here this evening and you have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is your opportunity. It is a golden and a great opportunity. The scripture tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John chapter 3, verse 16. God's love is great and it is manifested to us all through the death of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. His commandments are not heavy and burdensome. His commandments are plain and simple. As Isaiah the prophet said, though a wayfaring man, though a fool, shall not err therein. It is simple. Anyone who is of the age of accountability can obey the doctrine, the gospel of Jesus Christ, have their sins remitted, and Jesus will add them to the church. You do that by believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John chapter 3, verse 16. You do that by making the good confession. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. You do that by repenting of our sins, of your sins. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. You do that by being baptized or immersed in water for the remission of those sins. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. If you're subject to the invitation, will you come as we stand and sing the song collectively?